Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network podcast, where you are joining myself, Ted. And me, Emily. And today we're going to be looking at the, uh, the powerful, uh, beautiful, and haunting poem, Remains by Simon Armitage. Um, now, sadly, we're not joined by Al today, so we're going to be looking at context first, but for once without Al. So, uh, Emily, are you up to the job? I am. History woman in the spot, as I like to be known. As you like to be known, famously. Uh, so what have you got for us? Okay, so this is a modern conflict poem. It follows the real-life experience of a soldier, Godman Tr- Tromans, who was serving in Basra, Iraq. And we know that this is really anecdotal and actually is from his own experiences because Simon Armitage, the poet, actually took, play, took part in a documentary called The Not Dead. Um, this was produced for Channel 4, in which... Armitage sort of interviewed a range of veterans who felt like while some soldiers returned from war uh, in coffins, draped mm-hmm. in Union Jack flags, yeah. and their deaths are almost glorified, you know, war is glorified through them. This idea of those who return and who are not dead, but potentially wish they were, yeah. or feel almost as if they are, um, yeah. it basically is supposed to interviews their, their experiences. And Gardman Tromans is one soldier who Armitage interviews, and his words sort of become, the conversation they had, sort of becomes this poem we see as remains. So the story of this is a soldier is sent out by his seniors to tackle or to deal with a looter, someone who is obviously opportunistic, thieving a property perhaps during the, the conflict. The chaos of war, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about almost a, an, another an, soldier. An and I think it's quite, an enemy, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite significant for the guilt he feels because of that. Um, so basically, it describes the moment he's off to tackle a looter who's been raiding a bank there in Basra, and they make the decision to shoot him. And it, this is basically a poem which explores the post-traumatic stress disorder, the PTSD that he encounters, even when he is, and he quotes, home on leave. Yeah. Um, so just looking at this poem, what, what is it you think this poem adds to the anthology? What do you, what do you find interesting and thought-provoking about this poem? I find the question of masculinity quite interesting in this poem, especially when we... Uh, compare it to poems such as The Charge of the Light Brigade, yeah. where the soldiers are celebrated, you know, that honour is celebrated, they're seen as brave. I feel like this is unique in that it deals with the aftermath of war, um, whilst also dealing with the present tense of war as well, because yeah. of, of the way it deals with war on the moment, really. I think it adds quite a lot to the anthology. What about yourself? Um, I think I think one of the, the saddest tragedies of war is that the, the survivors... Um, they don't come back the same. They leave something mm. of themselves over there, and often they come back very muted without their voice. And I think what's touching and beautiful about this poem is Simon Armitage is trying to use his skills as a poet to provide a vehicle for the for the experiences and the trauma and the pain of Gardman Tromans. Yeah. To the extent, you know, obviously this isn't... <laughs> the Gardman Tromans is not himself a poet, doesn't necessarily have... He wouldn't think the ability to express himself. And what's amazing about this poem is that Simon Armitage manages to find the balance of being true to the voice of Gardman Tromans and what he's gone through, yeah. while at the same time imbuing it with a sort of uh, the, the visceral imagery and the poet, poetic majesty that he possesses to really make this cut through and you know, really register with us, which is so, so Absolutely. important for realising the, uh, the horror that is, uh, and quite, I use that term quite literally, that is PTSD. Um, so I think this is arguably, in a contemporary sense, the most important poem in the anthology. Yeah, I would agree. You know, even the title remains. This is what the soldier sees remains of him. Yeah. You know, there is something left over of this soldier, but it's not the whole being that was sent off to war. 
I think if you even watch the interview from The Not Dead, Troman's talks about how he watched the media reports of war and he, and he saw the Falklands and the experience of veterans from the Falklands in his mm-hmm. own growing up. And he felt like that was almost a lie. And, and you see that actually he didn't go... He went to war with all of that patriotism, potentially, that, that vision of war, and he came back just to remain of his former self. 100%. I think it's really worthwhile watching the... What's the name of the, the documentary? The again? Not Dead. The Not Dead. I think it's really worthwhile watching The Not Dead because before we started recording, we were talking about how important the notion of you know PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is across several of these poems. And you know this documentary gives you a chance to really explore that, to really see how that's influenced and affected the lives of, of several veterans yeah. and of several people um, in relation to veterans. So really, really would recommend checking that out. And that is available on YouTube as well. I think that leads us on to our first point quite nicely, Ted, because we've got the sense with the abrupt opening and that sort of anecdotal tone on another occasion. It's almost as if, as a reader, we join the poem sort of mid-conversation or mid-interview, as we know that conversation took place between Armitage and Troman's for the documentary. You can almost hear the soldier's voice coming through here. On another occasion, we got sent out. Um, and I think it's almost, you know, we've got that use of the time phrase, haven't we, to suggest yeah. that this is only part of his story. He could have told several stories. In fact, he probably did. This is just the one nugget that was turned into a poem almost. And I think that's sort of tragic in itself, that conversational, almost mundane, everyday language. But then what he goes on to describe is so far from everyday. Um, yeah, and I think like that, I think the, the beginning of this is so, so, so significant. So, I mean, for me, I almost imagine it kind of, he's often this, I mean, we want to say narrator, and obviously we know it's a, a real person, but I'm going to use the term narrator. I get the sense this narrator is always running through this in his mind. Yeah. And that in this moment, we're almost peering into his tortured psyche and he is, he's, he's almost like not aware that we're seeing inside of his mind and he's halfway through listing off one of several horrors, one of several traumatic incidents we've seen. And I also think what's important, and it reminds me of exposure as well, is the use of a collective pronoun at the start of this poem. On another occasion, we get sent out. Yeah. And I think what we see in both exposure and remains is that while these soldiers go through traumatic experiences, they are unified and bonded in that. And there's something important in that. And although that's not necessarily one of the main messages in this poem, I think it does it does hint at how this is something that affects nearly every soldier. Yeah. And how and that, think, the importance of that being in the opening line should not be underestimated. Yeah, and the anonymity of this soldier, although we do know it is written about Troman's experience, the fact that that doesn't come through in yeah. the poem shows that this could be the experience of, of any man who yeah. has experienced conflict. No, no, you know, no kind of names, no proper nouns, no place names. Yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. It um, and then it goes on, and sort of leading on from that point, he describes how he was sent out. So obviously we get that sense that, you know, he's following orders, that chain yeah. of command that we know from other poems exists in conflict, to tackle looters raiding a bank. Now, we've already talked about the significance of it being a looter who they were off to tackle. But I find that use of that verb tackle quite interesting. It's almost synonymous with a football match, you know, something that seems quite easy, something that seems almost enjoyable, a challenge to be faced, but something that won't be too sort of heavy on them. And then the fact that the rest of the poem deals with the aftermath of that, you know, it wasn't something that was over and done within seconds. This is something that's going to be replayed over and again in his mind forever. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting there is we also, you know, one of the things this poem does quite well is looking at the 
you know, the linguistic nature of the military and the kind of the language that armies use. So what you see, I mean, for anyone who is a, you know, a Call of Duty nerd reference, anyone who's a Call of Duty fan out there or has enjoyed films like Seven Private Ryan and military films, you know, the army is always using um, euphemisms, right? So it's uh, green on blue to refer to uh, kind of enemies fighting each other. Friendly fire where you can kill someone on your own side is called blue on blue. Um, you know, you talk about enemies as tangos or, um, you know, in World War Two it would have been Jerry, whatever it might be. We're always looking to use euphemisms rather than acknowledge what's actually going on. So although it's, you know, I definitely think they go, they're trying to make it seem simple and easy, but it's almost like he's ignoring his fear perhaps Absolutely. here to tackle. Like, it's no big deal. Looters raiding a bank, raiding. So that, you know, are there weapons being used? These are all euphemistic phrases which belie the true nature and threat of what they're actually participating in, I think. Yeah. Um, and then the last line in that stanza, we've got the phrase, probably armed, possibly not. And I think this is a really interesting one to look at when we're talking about the, the unique experiences and mindset of a, of a soldier. So if we look at the first word in that line, probably. So for me, that really makes me think of the soldiers are in a very unique situation that it's life or death. And they have to make a split-second decision on a life-or-death matter. Do you let someone go who could have a gun and could turn around and fire you? Or do you make the decision to shoot them, a decision from which there's no tracking back, which has irrevocable, irreconcilable impact? Probably armed. So he makes the decision in that moment, this person probably has a gun. And he's not 100% certain. Yeah. But the nature of war does not give you certainty. It only gives you a split-second decision. And then just the second half of that line, possibly not. So he accepts that maybe this person doesn't have a weapon, but ultimately he has to make a decision in his self-interest. And he goes, possibly not, maybe he doesn't have a gun, but the implication is there is that they have to make these decisions not knowing the full information, that are life or death. And I think those words probably or possibly really give us quite an important insight into the the difficulties and challenges of the decisions they they make. I think almost... Okay, so if we make that link back to tackle, what I was just saying, that idea that they were sent out with this sort of loose order, this ambiguous order, you know, go and tackle them. Was it it commanded to them to go and kill? And that idea that actually he was the person in that moment, this young guy who had to make that decision. I don't know if he's armed, but if he is, I need to shoot quickly or it'll be my life on the line. And it's that kind of split-second judgment that soldiers face all the time in war. And potentially the misleading or ambiguous orders that they're following so they end up feeling that guilt on their own shoulders almost yes. because they've had to make the decision themselves really interesting so second stanza uh what we're we looking at there so i find really interesting here we were talking before about how war can sort of unify a group and that idea of camaraderie and i yeah. find it really interesting how the soldiers enter this stanza or enter this situation as it were as anonymous individuals, myself and somebody else and somebody else. And you see that syndetic list in there, the emphasis on the and, the idea that there was three of them there, but they were anonymous. They mm-hmm. were just individuals. You almost get that image of, you know, the dog colour, the the, the um, army number, and that's all yeah. they knew of each other, just, just random individuals. And that's such an important part of the psychology. Like, armies try to imprint psychology on people to strip away that individuality. Because individuality leads you to make kind of selfish decisions to preserve yeah. your own safety. Whereas that's the last thing the army want. They try and make you feel like you're a unit, not like you're an individual, because that doesn't help 
soldier achievers goals if he's worried about himself and you see that in the next line don't you we're all of the same mind Mm -hmm. trying to sort of justify to himself to reassure himself that you know we were all thinking it we were all about to shoot this was what we knew we were there for almost all products of their training linking back to almost a bayonet charge and kind of like they've been instructed on very much how to think you know it's kind of Mind control is the wrong expression, but certainly it's a powerful form of influencing their psychology to think in a certain way. Yeah, and you've got the repetition of all, haven't you, to justify. All three of us open fire, you know, it wasn't just me, it was all of us. And you get this sense that they've gone from being anonymous before the act, and then when the act's been committed of murder or, you know, they've killed this looter, they then feel that they're three of a kind letting fly. And I find the use of three of a kind really interesting here. On the surface, you can argue, you know, he's trying to reassure himself that it wasn't just him, there are all three of them, you know, who dealt the fatal blow, it doesn't matter, it was all of us. You can see him trying to almost avoid the blame, avoid the guilt there. But that use of three of a kind, metaphorically or alluding to a card game, you know, in in card games where you can find three suits, three cards that match the same suit, you call it three of a kind, it's a winning hand, a hand that you play. And I find this allusion to a card game, so soon after that word tackle, that idea that, you know, they're almost being played here as yeah. pawns in a game. You know, they don't hold the cards. They are the cards that are being played on the mm-hmm. table. They don't command, they just deal with the consequences. And I just find that image really interesting. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And again, I think I think Remains is one of the stronger poems in the anthology. And I think what you pick up today is the, the considered nature of every word, the room for different interpretations. And even if you just go online and do a few Google searches, you know, of analysis on this poem. Not that we've been doing not that. Not that we've been doing that, of course. This is all straight off the top of our heads. You know, you, you really do see the variety of interpretations of this poem. And I think that's something you see in a lot of Simon Armitage's poems. And that's always the indicator of a really well-written poem. I think it's so interesting that we were talking about this before. We you know we're reading so much into this. But some of this poem is verbatim. Like Some of it is from the mouth of the soldier. Yeah. And he wasn't trying to sort of create this floral, beautiful imagery when he was speaking. He was just speaking his experience. And, you know, Ted talked about how Armitage has added his majestic, poetic nature to this. But some of this is raw. You see that in the interview. Some of this is his words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're here discussing it when when the the truth is, you know, it's presented in quatrains, so ordered, so measured. Yet what he's describing is something that should not be ordinary to any man. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come on to that, that idea of form later, but the idea of how the important thing in this poem is how you know, the male mind, the masculine, the military mind tries to regiment, uh, pun there, uh, regiment the pain and trauma mm-hmm. they've experienced as, as a means of coping. But as we've seen with Jekyll and Hyde, repression never works. Um, so we've got the third stanza. So there's loads and loads we can talk about here. But I just want to start with the first line. I see every round as it rips through his life. Then just on to the second, I see broad daylight on the other side. So in the start of both those lines, we've got the, you know, the, the phrase I see. Importantly, you know, it's kind of very much almost in the, in the present tense rather than I saw. So I, what I love here is Armitage is so subtly portraying how for the soldier, this is still happening. Yeah. And there's a, a quote that I'm going to, you know, this is verbatim from the soldier himself. To this day, there is not, uh, there is not a day that goes by where I don't go through that whole situation in my head. So this, he says himself, he goes through the situation every day. So when he says, I see every round as it rips through, he means that in a literal sense. Yes. And as Emily's just said, it's not about you know the poet kind of portraying it in a certain way. This is 
his voice. He says this in the interview. So I think that presentation is, is such a deliberate portrayal of that this is happening right now. And that's the terrifying nature of, of kind of real trauma is that it blurs your sense of time, that this is an ongoing experience. Um, and in the first line, I'm always a big fan of looking for verbs just because I think the nature of these poems and the fact that look at power and conflict means verbs play a, a, a really important means of expressing yeah. the tone and the mood. Every round is it rips through his life. So let's zoom in in that word rips. So extraordinarily aggressive, like brutal. Like when we think of things that can be ripped, we think of things like paper. We think of things that are kind of like worthless, meaningless. To rip through something is to bear it in no regard. And so, it's not even ripping through his body, is it? It's describing it as ripping through his life. What do you think? It, what, why the end of the word, the line on life? Well, I think it's just, it's the, it's such an interesting relationship there between the brutality of the verb rips and the significance of the noun life. So I think it's almost that the, the nature of war and the nature of what he's done is tearing through everything that this man had. So his identity's gone, his family's gone, his biological bodies It's just yeah. everything is torn asunder by this one instant, uh, almost random act of brutality that war is dictated as is necessary in this one moment. Um, and I think that's such an interesting point you can look at there. Just the relationship between the verb, rips, brutally violent, shows him as the victim as being like powerless, as worthless, and then the, the, you know, the connotations we have of that noun life. Something that's to be preserved, something that's to be treasured, something that's special, unique. And it's the way it's like, just and the memory then rips yeah. through his life as a speaker, yeah. as a soldier who who lives. You know, going back to the idea of it, you know, some die at war. This looter died, but this this soldier is dying almost every day. Is it this memory rips through his own life? And we see later in the poem how this experience has traumatized him and effectively changed who he is. And then we've just got the last line in that stanza. And again, I could. I could spend more time on this, but I don't want to meander on too much. So just the last line in the stanza, and he's there on the ground, sort of inside out. So I want to talk about that phrase, sort of inside out. So sort of inside out. He, his words are, he's struggling to articulate exactly what he's seen. Because how can we, as people who have never seen war, how can Simon Armitage, who's interviewing someone who's never been there, truly understand what it is to see someone whose body has been torn apart by bullets? So he's, he's struggling to articulate what he's seen in this moment. And to an extent, you know, words help us. When we, when we think about something, when we kind of articulate it, it helps us process it. So he's also struggling to articulate to himself what he's seen. Sometimes, I think, I think it was in poppies, I use the word ineffable. Sometimes experiences are beyond our words. And I think this is one of those moments where words are insufficient to express what he's seen. Not just to people who haven't seen it, yeah. but even to himself. And then that almost changes there, doesn't it? So he's got that sort of... It creates that afterlife now for the character because the character's living on through... Well, the character, the looter, is yeah. living on through his memory. And he goes from that sort of quite literal, quite desperate sort of description of sort of inside out, like he can't find the words to put that image together. And then he, he in the next line, it's quite poetic, the image of agony, mm-hmm. that declarative nature of that sentence almost is it metaphorical we can't quite tell <laughs> because you know he's still struggling to find the words but we see his, his next attempt at trying to describe that body yeah. the only way you can describe it is to just say it's sort of agony personified you know yeah. anyone who's ever thought about what agony is this is what i saw i saw that and you need to hear about my experiences absolutely and just you know i think 
a little bit of neurochemicals here briefly in you know as you're dying your mind is still it takes a while for your mind to shut down so often you have time to register what's happening to you often you have time to register the loss you know if we think of the guillotine in the french revolution after your head was cut off you know your your face was still moving for a good a good few seconds while, mm. while you were dead and so this soldier this person has been shot through it's not an instant death he's gonna be bleeding to death you know so th- th- Everything about this man suggests pain. His, the way his yeah. body's torn asunder, the look in his face, the shock, the horror. And we might even think of what this man actually died for. He might even be regretting that he's been shot for stealing just 50, 60, 100 US dollars, whatever it is. It's, yeah. Nice factual reference there. Well, yeah, That was not in the video. <laughs> that was not in the video, but of course, um, you know, uh, the American economy did have to subsidise it with US dollars in the war of Iraq. Anyway... We see the colloquial nature, don't we, continue into the next line with one of my mates goes by. And I just find it so jarring that whilst he's describing something which is so abhorrent, so what you would hope would be a once in a lifetime in a negative sense sort of experience, we see him using these colloquial everyday phrases to describe it. One of my mates goes by, uses the words mates and then tosses this idea that it's the everyday language mixed with something which is so extraordinary that I find so jarring here. And this is now his everyday. That's yeah. what we realise. It's, it's a degrading juxtaposition. I think one of the things that's terrifying about war is for the soldiers to experience it is the stark terms in which it places the fragility of your own body. So to see someone whose guts are kind of just pouring out into the street, into the dirt, and to realise that this is what's inside of you as well, that to see what makes a person... And to see it so casually yeah. disregarded and, and you know, the, the disregard of the verb toss, the lack of respect, it, in devaluing someone else's life and in devaluing someone else's body, ultimately you are devaluing your own body, you're devaluing your own life. I don't know if that's devaluing. I think when he tosses, I mean, obviously we've got that use of the word, the verb tosses, but he describes in the interview the, this moment where they see the body sort of inside out yeah. on and they say all of his insides, the stomach line and everything was beside him on the ground. I think it's almost a sign of respect. Do you not think? Like, the lorries come. They've yeah. not ordered the lorry. The lorry's obviously there sent by the superiors to collect, you know, the sort of bodies. But it's like that final sign of respect before someone else deals with the body. It's like that, putting him back together almost. I, th- I think to an extent, I think on one level of soldiers, they are kind of professionally obliged to clear the street and mm. so for hygiene reasons. But I think on the other one, there's an acceptance of the nature of war here. There's the kind of idea of um, in not pausing and in not being affected by this and in kind of acting like it's not that big a deal, even if it really accepts you, then they accept that this is okay, that this is just what war is. You shoot someone, their guts fall out, and you move on with it. Yeah. So as he's kind of forcing the guts back in and tossing his body into into kind of this the back of this lorry, I think as a deeply metaphorical moment that accepts that you... You accept the nature of war. You accept that you yeah. are just you're just killing someone. This is just a job. You've shot someone. He's dead. His guts are hanging out, and you get on with it. And off he goes. Yeah, and I just think, think it's a symbolically degrading moment for everyone involved. We have those verbs, don't we? As well, tackle, tosses. Those things. Yeah. It's supposed to take a moment. It's supposed yeah. to be over and done with. Like you said before, you know, it's supposed to be cleaned up and dealt with. Yeah. But actually. Uh, psychologically, it'll never be dealt with. I mean, we're talking about the you know the crazy thing about the army is we're talking about the professional professionalization of murder, and we really see that in that image, the idea of scoop up the guts, put them in the back of a lorry. It's your job, and I think on some level that's what ultimately traumatizes these soldiers in that everything in modern society teaches us to value life, but when they go over there, 
their job means they have to do the complete opposite to survive. Absolutely, and we see that in the next line, don't we? I sort of almost teach this as the Volta of the poem, but it's such a an anticlimax for a Volta. You know, the Volta, we would hope, is that he returns home and everything's better for him. Mm. And he starts the next line, end of story, except not really. So we almost get that glimmer of hope that the tone's going to change, the Volta's come, things are going to change, he's back home on leave, but actually, no, it's not the end. And, you know, that sums up the poem, doesn't it? And he says his blood shadow stays on the street. It's quite ambiguous, that. It, it, it definitely is. And just, just on the point you've just made about end of story, except not really. For me, I, I think there's a, there's a sarcastic element to the sentence, or to this line, oh, no, yes, yeah, sentence, in that end of story, except not really. And for me at that moment, I can't help but feel it's addressed to us, the reader, us yeah, as civilians. Absolutely. Who, let's look at war films, okay? So I think one of the... Two exceptions might be The Hurt Locker and uh, Clint Eastwood's film American Sniper, which do touch a little bit on PTSD. But most war films, they end with at the war, with someone being shot. They never look at the aftermath. Partly because that would be quite depressing and boring, quite frankly. Seeing someone waking up in the middle of the night screaming doesn't have the same uh, jolting action as seeing someone storm a beach at Normandy. So it's... You know, we tell the story of kind of we accept that soldiers see terrible things. Yeah. We accept that they go through trauma, but we're not really interested in the nitty gritty of them having to piece back together their psychological makeup because that's one too depressing for us, hard to dramatize and make into an interesting film. So I think in that moment it's kind of like just so you know, this isn't the end of the story. Actually, this is just the beginning of the horror, and it's challenging the narrative we have around uh, the horrors of war. I think. I think you link it to films there, uh, Ted, but it's almost, you know, that is where they're supposed to stop talking. If we look back to World War One, yeah. World War II even, you know, they often use countless, there are countless stories of soldiers who never spoke of the war again. I know yeah. my granddad, he never would speak about the war, apart from in sort of really jovial terms about yeah. his friends and his mates. He could never bring himself to discuss what happened there. And we hear that all the time about veterans. Um Hopefully not so much nowadays yeah. with the change in nature and the introduction of an acceptance of this being a mental illness. You know, yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder is seen as an illness now. We're only talking so many years ago. Yeah. Soldiers who felt like this would be shot for cowardice on the battlefield. So for them, it would be the end of the story. They'd feel like this and that would be the end of it. If they ever got home, they wouldn't be speaking about feeling so afraid again. And even the, you know, the interesting thing is that when we talk to veterans, we ask them, what was the war like? How was the war? The very nature of that question, we don't ask, how, was, how, are yeah, how are you now? How was dealing with the aftermath? And again, I think we can come back to this idea of end of the story, except not really. We're only interested in the story about the war, not in the aftermath. But not the real story. You know, we, yeah. we don't want to hear. We want to hear the camaraderie. We yeah. want to hear the positives. You know, if someone... I've never really heard the war being spoken about, to me, yeah. in, a, in a sense of, you know, well, his guts are on the floor, sort of inside out, which is why that image is so shocking, because it's almost not spoken about. Mm-hmm. So uh, we go on to the next line, which is extraordinarily uh, kind of linked with what we've just stated. So his blood shadow stays on the street. So I think this is a moment where we see Simon Armitage take some, you know, kind of poetic flour- flourish. So this idea of a blood shadow, like, what a, a beautiful phrase that is. So this idea of on the actual street itself, this man's remains have stained the floor. Now, as an image and as a symbol, that represents, as we were saying earlier, the degradation of life. That his whole life and his whole body has been reduced to blood stained on the floor with the dirt, with the with the excrement, with the kind of the grime of daily life. Something that people walk on. Something that he himself walks on several days. And every time he does that, it's degrading the uh, the sanctity of life. 
Yeah. And not only that, this this blood shadow, you know, we can see kind of a figurative element here as well. The idea that this shadow of blood looms over the rest of his time yeah. serving in this place. And then, of course, going forward and looking at the PTSD and how he's traumatised, this blood shadow will remain over him for the rest of his days. It's the idea, isn't it, that a shadow always follows you and the shadow yeah. is always behind you when you're looking at the sun. So I think that's a really beautiful image to describe it. No matter what he comes home to when he's yeah. home on leave, no matter what joy, what light lies ahead for him, there's always this darkness following him, this grief, this guilt, this, this memory is always yeah. going to be following him. And I'm, I'm a big believer in always looking for a line of the poem that really sums up the message. And for me, I think blood shadow is, is, that, is that phrase, it's that line, because that's ultimately what this poem is about. It's about him dealing with the blood shadow that looms um, over him. That, that metaphorical guilt, isn't it? Yeah. I always teach students to use this quote sort of in introductions because mm, it sums up exactly the effects of conflict, the reality of conflict. Yeah. Whatever that essay is going to ask you about, this sums up the poem. It's And to even kind of consider the very nature of the, the language it is traumatising in nature, such a haunting noun. Yeah. Um, so um, you're going to lead us on to some analysis of yeah, the... Yeah, so at uh, the end of that stanza, we see he returns home on leave, just as I was saying, and we see the enjambment here from this stanza to the next, but I blink. And he bursts again through the door of the bank, sleep, and he's probably on, possibly not dream, and he's torn apart by a dozen rounds. Um, you might have noticed the way I read that there. The way I see that, these we've got these three words from the semantic field of sleep. Sleep, dream, and blink. These sort of usual, everyday occurrences. And those words almost punctuate the memory mm-hmm. that's coming through. Um, and we see that really through the enjambment and the sejora used in this stanza. Um, and what it's literally describing is that no matter how much he tries to sleep or dream, this memory, this horror sort of disturbs him night upon night you know he can't dream he can't sleep and i find it really sort of paradoxical how it's those words that really we relate to sleep and dreams yeah. that actually do the disturbing in those sentences as if almost that sleep and dream punctuates the memory sleep and dream is but a, a tiny moment within that the ongoing nightmare is suffering mm-hmm. uh, and I, i'm just going to move on and look at the the kind of the verbs that are used in that stanza which are you know, again very very significant so first of all, we got, you know, at bursts again through the doors of the bank and we got torn apart by a dozen rounds. So this works in two levels, right? We've got the, the idea of the body itself that's been shot being kind of burst and kind of being torn. Uh, you know, it's violent language. It shows the kind of the way that bodies are so easily kind of torn asunder by the, yeah. the ruthless efficiency of you know, modern warfare. But then we've also got the idea that his psyche, his mind, his sleep, his he has no reprieve. His very psychological makeup is being torn apart. And again, we return to that idea of, you know, for something to be torn, it means it's weak, it means it's fragile, it means it's vulnerable, it means it's something that's not necessarily valued. And the idea of something being burst, when something bursts like a balloon, it's impossible to put back together. Yeah. Because it's broken so many tiny pieces and spread so far out. So think if we're linking that with his psychological makeup... That very much puts the idea in mind that this is something that cannot be mended. This is uh, something that's permanently burst. See, I almost I interpret that verb burst in a different way. I think that he's almost just back before when he was talking about, you know, it wasn't just me, it was somebody else and somebody else. And we only had that split second to decide if he was probably on, possibly not. Yeah. I think he's almost re-justifying that to himself. You know, he burst, he was yeah. in those doors of the bank within a moment. It was that split second moment yeah. that has now impacted me forever. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and again, I think all interpretations are valid, and it's just that idea of because it, it's such a well-written poem, there's so so much to it. So I just want to look at the last line in this stanza, which I think is really, really important for exploring PTSD, um, which I think is really the, the, the thrust of the poem. And the drink and the drugs won't flush him out. So unsurprisingly, if you are aware of PTSD, our narrator turns to drink and drugs to try and find some reprieve, find some escape from uh, the trauma and from this very visceral, clear memory. And that's something that a lot of victims of PTSD turn to. Um, there was a study looking at the Second Gulf War and uh, US servicemen who returned to America uh, who had served in Iraq, same as our narrator had. The levels of domestic violence and the levels of suicide and uh, drug and alcohol addiction among these veterans, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's honestly horrifying. And that really shows us the, the damage that's caused to these soldiers. That means when they return to civilian life, when they return to normal life, they can't escape the violent nature of their deeds, the violent nature yeah. of what they've seen. And it impacts upon their home life. Perfectly healthy men who are loving fathers and good husbands have come home and inflicted violence and brutality upon their family. And that is undoubtedly a direct ramification of the environment they've been in. So he turns to drink and drugs to try and flush this flush this out and let's look at that verb flush so you know he's trying to flush out the memory of the man he shot so I I think we all know what we flush so I think that shows how he sees this memory how he kind of regards it as kind of human waste as something that needs to be gotten rid of but let's just look at the next word there him that's a really really interesting kind of vague pronoun he's trying to flush him out I think there's an interpretation here that ultimately who he's trying to flush out is himself. When we turn to drinking drugs and when people develop an addiction, often that comes from a place of deep self-loathing. Yeah, so when that, he's trying to that desperation to escape almost. So the person he's trying to flush out, I think for for my interpretation, is the way he sees himself. He sees himself as someone who's you know who's got blood in his hands. He sees himself as a murderer. He sees himself as someone who's done something wrong. So when he turns to drinking drugs, I would argue it's not the man who he kills memory he's trying to flush out. It's his own sense of identity. He's looking for the obliviation and the kind of, yeah. kind of complete destruction of personality that alcohol and drugs, when they're abused, do provide. Absolutely. And he's, you know, the, the futility of self-medicating, we mm -hmm. see that here. You know, he's not referring to the therapy sessions he had or, you know, any support he had from the services provided to him after. And I think... Students often try and find a message in the poem, don't they? You yeah. know, well, what, well, Miss, what's Armitage's message here? What's he trying to say? And, and you can almost say it's, it's an appeal for greater appreciation of what these soldiers go through, for better support packages to be put in place yeah. for them when they return. You know, for, I think it's, it's common to talk about in all society now, but better support for mental health services. Yeah. And we see that here, you know. He doesn't talk about any positives he had when he came back, any support he received. It's that he was left with self-medicating. Yeah. And that's all he could say. Um, so just on the next line, we've got, and this is, Em was laughing. He's highlighted earlier. this as awesome. Yeah, this, that's and, all he's written. And I mean that in the true, in the true original sense of the word. Okay, he's here in my head when I close my eyes. Now this line is so perfect that I struggle to to kind of trivialize it by zooming in on one particular word. I just want to think about that line itself. He's here in my head when I close my eyes. So every time our narrator closes his eyes. He sees the remains, or maybe not. He just sees the man who he's murdered. Yeah. And I want to think about, on a psychological level, what that would do to you. 
We also don't know if when he's there in his head, whether or not he's alive or dead, whether or not, you know, this is a really vague kind of wording here. He's here in my head. He doesn't say he's lying, he say he's dead, it's just he's here in my head. So is he having conversations? Is he having this kind of like imaginarily constructed Absolutely. dialogue with this person who's murdered? There's so much certainty in that sentence. There's so much kind of absolute kind of conviction that he is there. There's no doubt. It's not, yeah. it's not saying it's I'm not imagining a memory it. of him, it's no. like He's there. This isn't a metaphor. He is there in his head. That is a, you know, almost a verbatim quotation. So the next thing I want you to think about is this. Is, <laughs> you're addressing our I listener am. now. You're passionate. It's so awesome. He's here in my head when I close my eyes. Is he asking for help there? When you say something, there's someone here in my head. When I close my eyes, he's there. I can't help but think there's a pleading quality to that where he's asking for someone to help him. Because yeah. every time he closes his eyes, he sees the victim of his, of his, of his gun, of his crime. Well, not crime, but of, of the person <laughs> who, who, you know, who's slaughtered. And I just find that so, so tragic, the certainty and the kind of the helplessness and the pleading. Or maybe even, perhaps even worse, is he resigned that that person will always be there? Yeah. And I think there's... That is just, for me, an incredibly powerful line. You can't escape it, can you? No. I mean, we've seen through the stands before, you can't escape this memory. And you've talked about, you know, the rates of suicide in, in ex-soldiers, but you see that here, you know. Yeah. There's no escaping for him. He cannot be the person he wants to be. He well, there's one escape, blink but yeah. Here. yeah. Yeah, he can't blink. Um, and you see that in the metaphor next, dug in behind enemy lines, that sense of permanence, that sense that, you know, this was almost inevitable. And that use of, of the military sort of terminology, enemy lines. Again, looking back to what you were saying before, Ted, about the euphemistic nature of the way they talk about yeah. everything. Um, so I think uh, what I want to look at next is uh, not left for dead in some sun-distant, sun-stunned, sand-smothered land. You've so, not delivered that with the passion I was hoping. I really no, like this. Not left for dead in some distant, sun-stunned, sand-smothered land. I think, I, I, think, I, think, I think this land line is important, but it doesn't carry the same weight to me as some of the previous ones I've looked at. So my analysis of this, which you can disagree with, but I just think the previous, some of the previous lines have been so brilliant. This is a much more ostentatious one. I think it's one a lot of candidates will pick up when they're analysing. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got the kind of the distant sun, sand. So there's an element of plosives here. So he's almost spitting out the words. I think you can make the very interesting point there that he's spitting out the words because he can't, the memory itself is distasteful. Yeah. So he wants to kind of explain it as quickly as possible because to let it linger is to kind of appreciate the taste and kind of let it sink in. And that's not what he wants. Okay, we've also got the idea of the length of this line is significantly longer than any other line in the poem. So I think one, you know, fairly obvious and bit of analysis would be that this perhaps represents that the memory is something that is ongoing. Yeah, the lingering nature. inescapable. Absolutely. Um, and that's pretty much all I'd say for that line. Um, there's lots more you could say, but it's not one of my favourite. Yeah, but I think he's saying, isn't he? You know, people will say to me, well, he's, he's dead, he's buried, he, you know, he belongs in Basra, you did your job, now you're back, move on. And what yeah. he's trying to say is, he's not six feet under in desert sand, yeah. he's in my head, and, and that's where he lives on. He almost gives this, this loot of an afterlife here, doesn't he, in the poem. And we've got a lot of idioms used here. I'd probably pick up a six feet under, you know, this, yeah. this idiomatic nature of the poem. It's very colloquial, it's very anecdotal. Um, it's just raw, isn't it? That's what he said. Um, so then the next line we've got, uh, but near to the knuckle. Another idiom there, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and then the, the last line I just want to talk about. So if we come back to structure, so I'm a big fan of analysing structure. As we all are now. As we all are now. Uh, and in particular, the first and last lines of a poem are always very carefully chosen, strategically uh, worded. So it ends in the image of his bloody life in my bloody hands. Now, pretty much everyone's going to be able to tell you that, you know, the use of bloody here is a pun in the first instance. So his life is full of blood, the man who he shot, but also, of course, it's kind of a term of kind of anger and frustration at kind of why did this have to happen? But I want to really focus on the image. The last three lines in this, the last three words in this poem are my bloody hands. So that's the last image we have in our head as this poem finishes. And for me, I think this represents that in his last words, our narrator recognises that his hands are responsible for the action, that they will forever be bloody. I mean, earlier we were forging links with uh, all Neptune's oceans will not wash my hands clean. Yeah, and the Lady Macbeth screams that. And I I think in this, this, this line is a symbol for how he blames himself for what's happened. We go back to that earlier quotation of how he relives every moment. There's no doubt that he would change this if he could, I think. He doesn't say our hands, does he? He doesn't talk back to somebody else and somebody else and all three of us. He's the one now accepting that responsibility, Mm -hmm. accepting the aftermath of that guilt. My hands. Everything the army's told him about collective identity, about sense of unity, that's all been abandoned. Yeah, his friends weren't there for him when he was turned to drinks and drugs. You know, those three of a kind. The sense of camaraderie left when he left the war. You know, there was no one picking up the pieces for him. His drill sergeant who will have trained him isn't there. Everything they said wasn't there. He's left with only his bloody hands. And I think that's just, that's resignation, that's ownership of what he's done, that's guilt, that's blame, that's self-loathing. And I just think that's one of the most powerful uh, lasting and depressing images that's conjured in this anthology. And the fact that Armitage chooses to end the poem in this note, I think shows us that um, PTSD is something that is uh, just unavoidable, inescapable, life-altering and um, tragic. Absolutely. So um, that is uh, the end of our uh, lengthy analysis and hopefully helpful. A bleak Uh, note to leave it on, but... Probably I th- yeah. unavoidable. I think I, th- I think that's definitely the case. I think this is one of the more um, emotionally challenging poems in the anthology because it is so firmly rooted in the experiences of a real-life uh, soldier. Um, and I think that's something that you really, really need to be able to portray in your analysis of the poem, is that this poem effectively outlines the uh, tragedy of PTSD and the guilt that our society should feel for the lack of support and understanding yeah. that's given to victims. Um, and I think elements of the analysis that I've given in this poem could be depressing and could be quite upsetting. But, I mean, I think that speaks the the power of the voice Armitage has kind of conjured in this poem. Absolutely. I love that Armitage through this poem has given a voice to the voiceless, hasn't he? You know, so often we don't hear this narrative. Mm-hmm. We don't hear men talk about their experiences at all, let yeah. alone in conflict where they're supposed to be brave and bold and honourable. And I think, you know, he sums up at the end where he says... I know what I'm saying is near to the knuckle. Obviously, that idiom meaning distasteful, somewhat problematic to talk about almost. I think the resounding message is this is not problematic to talk about. This is something that soldiers should be discussing, society should be discussing, politicians should be discussing, and we should be bearing this in mind before we go sending people off to war. I suppose it's our duty to make sure that, uh, that this isn't the end of the story. Not really. Not really. So that's the line we will leave it on. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, English nerds. Thank Uh, you very much. Enjoy your vision. Uh, Have a lovely uh, bit of poetry analysis, I guess. Goodbye.
Goodbye from me.